Thank you, choirs. Good to see you this morning, and I hope you're doing well. And uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading in a few moments out of the book of Acts, chapter 12. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad that uh, you are here. And normally you would hear in the announcements that after the service, if you go right through those doors to our bookstore, uh, as a first-time guest, we have a special gift we'd like to give to you. Looking forward to um, the month of August and getting people back on track and in-house. August 22nd is going to be a, a huge day. That's a promotion Sunday in our Sunday school. We're launching some new Sunday school classes um, about that time as well. And uh, so we're just looking forward to a great day on August 22nd. Hope you're utilizing that to invite folks to be with you. And um, I know we have a lot of people vacationing, but and I know we're hearing a lot about the, the Delta variant. But we want August the 22nd to be the final nail in the coffin of COVID's influence on our church and on our lives. Amen? All right. So you can help kill it by inviting people to be here on the 22nd to be with you. You know, it seems that in our sophisticated world that people still can't get the concepts of angels and demons out of their minds. Over the past 20 years, there's been a slew of movies and television shows that have been built around uh, this subject. Uh, even this year, you can find articles back in February of this year in magazines and other outlets such as uh, six shows about angels and demons you need to watch. That was a real interesting article uh, for me. I'm, I'm joking, it's not. But anyway... And certainly as we consider the true lines of our faith, as that's what we're doing in this series entitled True Lines, looking at our faith from the ground up, you cannot ignore the subject of angels and demons. And so as we come to this eighth message in this series, I think it's a good place to talk about the subject in light of what we broached last week on the topic of evil in God's good universe. Now, I'll come back in a few weeks to deal with the fall of humanity, <clears throat> and in that part of this series, we're going to be dealing with a lot of stuff. We'll focus on the fall for a while, and it'll, we'll see how it applies to a lot of cultural things going on right now, things that we're dealing with sociologically, ethically in our society, and how we understand the fall of humanity applies and flows out into that, but... Um, I'll come to that in a few weeks. Today, I just want to share a standalone message with you regarding these beings called angels. You have to deal with them somewhere, so it's a good place to start, and what the reality means for us. So I've entitled the message today, Considering Angels, and today I'm focusing on what you and I would know as the good angels, right? The ones that did not fall, the elect angels that have been faithful unto God as opposed to the dark angels, or the fallen angels, or the evil angels that you and I would know as Satan and demons and things of that nature. And we'll come back again to deal with the darker side of things when we deal with the issue of the fall. So the message today, considering angels, let's turn to Acts chapter 12, verses 5 through 10. And I hope that uh, out of this message, I hope that you find encouragement in your faith and in your walk with Jesus and thinking about these beings that God made and who have a role to play in our world and in our lives. So Acts 12, we find Peter is in jail. The early church is being persecuted. And Herod is beginning to um, 
bring pressure on the life of the church. He's put James, the brother of John, to death already. And so in verse 5 of Acts 12, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, and remember he's already killed one believer, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they walked, uh, went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. The blessed angles, as one of my stranger theology professors called them, uh, back, I remember, never forget, it's been over 30-something years ago, and so I've never forgotten it, so it was sort of a great teaching device he had of calling the blessed angles all the way through that the lectures about them. But the angels appear in Scripture on many different occasions. There is no one overall description given of them, and when they do appear, they always appear in relationship to doing something, being active. Well, how should you and I think about them in relationship to our overall faith? What difference does it make to remember their work in our day-to-day lives? Well, I think much, and uh, we'll come back to that in a bit. But to get us started this morning, I just want to begin by talking about the reality of angels. Do you believe in angels? I do. The reality of angels. You know, in some people's minds, angels are not real beings. But again, in some people's minds, the same thing is true in relationship to what they think about God. But as we've noted since the beginning of this series, we believe as followers of Jesus, do we not, that God exists, that he has clearly revealed himself, and he's most clearly revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth, and in that revelation of himself, he has also revealed to us the reality of these powerful apparently very beautiful creatures called angels. And in our culture, you know, uh, that people think is getting more secularized in many ways. In our culture, most people still believe in the existence of angels. In recent studies during the past decade or so, this is from Salon Magazine, 77% of the country believe in angels. Compare that article says only 40% concede that climate change is a reality. So more people believe in angels than climate change in our culture still. You'd never know it from the media, but nevertheless. Another study from 2016 shows that over 70%, again, still believe in angels. Jesus certainly believed in angels. He taught us about the reality of angels. Just a couple of things we can look at in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, and he's referring here to to children, if I remember correctly, and... uh, He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And so Jesus taught about them. And he alluded to their nearness, did he not, 
in the process of when he was getting arrested and being prepared to die on the cross. You remember in Matthew 26, verses 52 through 54, where he's in the garden and they come to arrest him. Peter chops off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then will the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way, that as I must be arrested, the angels cannot Deliver me, I must be arrested, I must die, God's will must be fulfilled. But never forget, Jesus says, they are there at my beck and call to do what I want them to do. You know, you don't have to talk long with people who have been or are involved in international missions in various parts of the world to believe in angels, that they're alive and they're involved in our world. Many years ago when Bill Graham was alive, he wrote a book called Angels. And it was familiar to the previous generation, but not so much, I'm sure, today. I was telling a friend last night about going to the Billy Graham Library a couple of years ago. And, you know, they brought his home there what he, what, that he grew up in, the house he, he grew up in as a boy. And so we were walking through, touring it. And I'll never forget that him had dead that many years. There was a young teenage girl, about 14, 15, and her grandmother was showing her through. And she was trying to tell her who Billy Graham was. And so, you know, Billy Graham was a household name for a long time, but how quickly, you know, we go away, how short is the shelf life. And so in his book, Angels, he shared a story from the mission field told by a Reverend John Patton. And Patton was a missionary in the South Pacific of the New Hebrides Islands. And one night, he and his wife found themselves, they were alone, and they felt, uh, found themselves threatened by some local tribesmen, and they had surrounded their mission headquarters. And they thought for sure that these men were going to burn down their um, headquarters and kill them both. And so they just got on their knees and they prayed all night long and asking God to protect them from harm. The next day they were astonished when they realized that the natives had gone away and they had not been harmed. They had no idea where they had gone or why they went away, but they thanked God for saving them through the night. And about a year later, the chief of that tribe uh, came to know Christ and others in the tribe, that chief who had threatened them that night. And so he was later visiting with the Patons, and they asked him about the incident on that night of terror in their lives. And the chief told them this. He says that he and his men were too fearful to carry out their plans of attack. They were intending to attack them, and they were going to kill them. But he said they had seen an army of giant men in, quote, shining garments with drawn swords in their hands surrounding the mission grounds. And Patton said he and the chief agreed that there was no explanation that night for what happened other than that God had sent angels to keep the missionaries from harm. So I have no problem believing in angels logically because if God can create one type of intelligent and powerful creatures like you, but it's not a stretch to think that he could also create others. I have no trouble believing in angels because their existence is clearly taught in the Bible and clearly taught by Jesus. And they're there for a reason. They're there because there's a role for them to play. And there's a role for them to play in your life and in my life. And so they're taught in Scripture. Jesus, the greatest teacher of all, talked about them. In fact, when you think about 
angels. R.C. Sproul notes that the word angelos, from which uh, the word angel when it's translated, he said it occurs more frequently in the Bible than the word we translate as sin, and more frequently than the word agape that is translated love. So the idea of angels in the New Testament, that word is translated more there for us, angelos, than the word for love, agape. So that kind of helps you understand the centrality of these beings and how prominent they are in the Word of God. And so I have no problem believing in them logically. I have no problem believing in them because I believe the Bible and I believe what Jesus taught about them. And then thirdly, I have no problem in believing in angels because of my strongest preschool memory that I have involves an angel. And I don't go around spouting this because people think you're weird when you talk about it, but um, we had two bedrooms in our home. I've told this year before, but I, I know you, my shelf life is short too. So I, I, um, I remember we had two bedrooms, so my sister and two brothers were in one room, and they were much older, still are, than me. And then I was in the bedroom of my parents until I was probably, I don't know, four years old. I remember moving into the other bedroom in the bed with uh, my one of my brothers and my other brother and sister slept in bunk beds and she got married not too many years after that but um, and then eventually we moved to a bigger house but I never forget and I wasn't dreaming uh, of a very hideous figure by my bed and I wasn't asleep it scared the living daylights out of me it scared me so much that I dove across my parents bed in the dark and only somehow my dad woke up in the midst of that and grab my wrist right here somehow and otherwise I'd have gone flying through the window by their bed and he put me between he and my mom in that bed I was trembling I was so scared and I've never fully understood what this was all about but I'll never forget this is my is probably I don't have a lot of preschool memories but this one is as strong as it was almost 60 years ago that this being beautiful, being in white, appeared above my bed. And I immediately felt all the tension go away. And I, was really, I went right to sleep at that moment in peace in the midst of that. And I have no problem believing in them because I know God ministered to a little child, a preschooler, through an angel uh, in my life. And I don't know all the metaphorical significance coming out of that encounter that night. Uh, but um, I know God had his hand on me and was looking out for me. But then, secondly, I want to talk to you this morning about the function of angels. As I said in the Bible, where we do see angels, they're always in action. That's why they're not described as far as how they look so much. We have a few descriptions, but primarily we see what they're doing. And what are some of the key things we see them doing in the Word of God? Well, one clear thing we see the angels doing, and this would be a great study in and of itself, is that the angels are caught up in the worship of God. It seems that in one sense they have been created for the worship of God. As a matter of fact, some interpret the Bible to teach that Satan, before his fall, was the leader of the angels in the worship of God. And we'll come back to that perhaps in the future. But in the passage Bill read from Isaiah this morning, Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is being called as a prophet, we see these beings, these angels, and they're, they're called seraphim here. 
And that's one of the ranks perhaps we have of cherubim and seraphim. We allude to those uh, two in one of our hymns. We sang it a couple of weeks ago, and I always wonder when we hear hymns like that, you know, cherubim and seraphim falling down before him. I wonder if people even know what that is often anymore. But these are angelic beings. They're described a cherubim as one that was there put at the Garden of Eden after the fall with a shining sword to not allow Adam and Eve back into the garden. And here in Isaiah, we see the seraphim, and they are surrounding the throne of God, and they have six wings. Not all angels are described as having wings, but they, these do, and they're calling out, and they're singing out in worship to God, holy, 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 holy to the third degree. It's a repetitive term to shout how holy and pure is God. And he is so pure and bright that on the one hand, this text shows that, uh, that the wings have to shield their eyes from seeing God in his glory and his presence. And so they are, by saying this over and over, emphasizing the perfect holiness of God. As a part of their worship, we sometimes hear about the angels singing. So many of our old hymnal, uh, books in our hymnals have songs about angels singing. We sing these songs a lot around Christmas. But usually we see that they are chanting something or saying something. Sometimes we see angels singing in particular. It is referred to as singing. One is in Job chapter 38 verse 7. It talks about, I'm not going to look all these up. They're on the screen. You can go back and get them. That the angels were singing at the completion of creation. The angels were praising God through song when creation was completed. So we know they were created somewhere right before the creation overall was done. And we also see them singing around the throne of God at the removal of the curse, the removal of the curse of the fall and the victory of Jesus. If you turn to Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, where we see this great time of, uh, of worship over the victory of Christ. And in verses 8 through 12, of Revelation 5, it says, And when he had taken the four living creatures, this is Christ taking the scroll of history to unfold. He's the ruler of all that's going to unfold. He will, he will triumph over all things. And so it says, When he had taken the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, that is before Jesus, and each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousands. Just an incalculable number, really. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, or singing, some would use the word here to think about them, singing. We see singing earlier in this same passage, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. And so we see that the angels are caught up in the great worship of God. We also see this idea of angels worshiping in Hebrews chapter 12. And 
this is where I want you to look, look at in, in your Bible with me. Because I think what we're about to read applies to what we're doing right here and right now. And what Pastor Kevin just led us to do a few moments ago. And I love this passage in the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 12. And I'll give you time to find it. So in Hebrews chapter 12, we're seeing a contrast between Israel. When Israel is coming out of the Egypt on the way to the Promised Land, they come to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. He's in the presence of God. The Israelites are not allowed to go on the mountain. They touch the mountain, they die. Everything goes on them near the mountain. So they don't have access to God and worship as does Moses in this sense because things are being set up to eventually bring us to Christ. But now in Christ, you and I do have access to God. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice uh, speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they cannot bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But notice the contrast for you and for me as Christians. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come, and he's not talking about here so much when you die and you go to heaven. He's talking about our worship now. And he says, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all. Listen to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is he saying? Well, in this contrast, he is saying you and I now have open access to the presence of God, where the Dead saints are already in the presence of God. The Old Testament saints are in the presence of God. The angels are in the presence of God. And they've gathered in joyful worship. And the picture is this. The picture is that somehow, mystically, as we gather for worship right here on this earth, we are gathering with the worship of God that goes on continually in heaven. So think about that. And if you want something, I think, that would charge up your public worship and clarify what we're getting to do when we come into this room and we gather as Christ's people and we're singing praises unto God and our choir is singing and we're singing along, that somehow our voices are caught up mystically to mingle with the voices of the angels and the saints who are already before the throne of God, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that ever make you think about what you're doing? You stand to sing, and you come in here on Sunday morning, you're a little bit tired, and you're sleeping, and you think about, man, I'm going to sing a song. Well, ratchet it up, man. The angels are going crazy before the throne. And you and I are getting to go into the room with them and worship our great God. You know, I think that would transform how we sing in here even more if we could really imbibe that truth 
swallow it down deeply in our lives. You know, it seems that two types of angels that have alluded to, cherubim and seraphim, are especially made to praise and enjoy the Lord and His beauty and His holiness around the throne. Ezekiel describes them in his vision in chapter 1 of his book, and it's a long passage. I'm not going to read it. But we also see a similar picture in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, of the same description similarly to what uh, Ezekiel gives of of these uh, angels before God. And turn to Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, where we're in the throne room of God. In Revelation 4, verse 6, it says, Also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Sounds like the angels in Isaiah 6, similar to what we read in Ezekiel chapter 1. And what do we see them doing? They are worshiping. We see these uh, symbols of the lion, the ox, it's all of God's creation, I think, caught up in that symbolism there. But I want you to notice something here. We have the imagery of wings we read about in Isaiah to help cover their eyes from the majesty of God. But here we see they're covered with eyes, do we not? Why do they have so many eyes? They're given so many eyes all around, even under their wings, by which to really see the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of God. And thus we see the symbolism being used here. God is holy, so the eyes are covered, right? But God is so beautiful because they're covered with eyes. To see Him in all of His glorious majesty, they've been given more eyes to see. How beautiful is the Lord. So the angels are caught up in worship in the presence of the holiness and the beauty of God. But the angels also, in what they do, they are, they are given to serve. The angels, they don't just reside in heaven attending to the worship and praise of God. They're also involved in God's attending to the world and His people carrying out His providential rule of the world. We talk, world, we talk about His providence in, I think, the second message. And so what did they do in their service? Well, one role they have played, especially in the Old Testament, in the unveiling of Christ, is they helped deliver the message of God to humans. And so the New Testament word that you and I have translated angel is the word angelos, and, it, and we hear it in uh, titles such as uh, city of, of lost what? Angelus, the city of angels, right? And they have a baseball team you baseball fans, don't they have a team called the Angels? Are they better than the Braves? I don't know. I don't, I don't really watch baseball. But Los Angeles, the city of angels. If I zing somebody, I really didn't know, so I'm sorry. But, um, and so the word angelos, angel, it means messenger. And so the angels, in the Old Testament in particular, were seen as having a role in the giving of the law of God to the Israelites. And so if you go to the book of Acts, chapter uh, 7, verses 52 and 53, where Stephen is given his speech when they're about to kill him. 
And he says in Acts 7, 52 and 53, he says that uh, you've killed, the, uh, killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you've betrayed and murdered him. In verse 53, Stephen says, you, have not, uh, you who have received the law that was given through the angels, but you've not obeyed it. So they had a role in the mediating of the law of God to the Jews in the Old Testament to Moses. Now we don't see them playing that role in the development of the New Testament. We do see them in the unveiling of Jesus. They're mentioned in the birth narratives, are they not? They're mentioned as speaking to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, remember? The angel appeared and he said, you're not going to be able to speak until he's born. So he appeared to Zechariah. Angels don't often appear, but when they do, we see them appearing here. They also appeared to Mary in uh, Luke chapter 1. And so we read about these encounters. And remember in Luke 1, it says that Gabriel was the one who came and gave the announcement to, to Mary. Remember Gabriel? And only two angels are named in the Bible. One is Gabriel and the other is Michael, the archangel. You have like arch enemies, a super he's a... A magnificent angel, particularly seemingly a leader among the angels in that sense. And so they're involved in the announcing of the coming of Jesus. They announce his birth, you recall, to the shepherds. They announce his resurrection to the women who came to the tomb. And they were at the ascension telling the disciples, why are you here looking up, right? He's given you something to do. And so With the development and the completion of the New Testament, though, the coming and the leaving of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit, we don't see angels so much involved anymore as communicating from God a message of unveiling truth. And so if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, that contrast is there for us between the uh, coming of Jesus and Hebrews 1 compares him to the angels. In Hebrews 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So Hebrews is saying Jesus is God's incarnation. And then if you pick up in verse 5 and go forward, it compares him to the angels. And it shows he is so much more superior than the angels. So that role of the angels in mediating the law preparing for the coming of the Messiah, announcing when he is leaving and telling the disciples to get to work. That role of revelation and work in that way by the angels seems to have stopped. And so I would just say today that we should be very wary of people after the New Testament era who say that angels have appeared to them and given them messages from God. We should be very wary of anything like that. Because that's where a lot of cults came from and false religions. Muhammad, right? The Quran is supposedly messages from an angel to him. And he first thought the angel was a demon. I think he was right. <laughs> or Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, right? The angel Moroni is tied up in that revelation. And Mormons even today on top of their temples will have that that golden statue of Moroni, the angel that supposedly revealed things to Joseph Smith, or a cult that used to be prominent in our nation called the family of God around the world. David Berg uh, said that uh, 
an angel named I think it was Abraham appeared to him and gave him messages, his revelations, and that cult was birthed from that. But in the Old Testament, in the coming of Christ, angels were involved in, in giving that message. But then next, as we think about what angels do, and this is where it comes down to thinking about us, angels are also greatly involved in ministering to the people of God. You remember in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, we read just a bit of that a moment ago, but if you go down to verse 14, he's comparing Jesus being greater than the angels, but he does say this, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Thus, in our text, we see that angels are called to serve, look after, protect, and minister to God's elect, God's people. Thus, in our text today that we read this morning in the book of Acts, we see that an angel was involved in delivering a believer from peril. Peter's life was probably saved there. Angels came and ministered to Jesus, did they not, at the end of his 40 days of temptation? The angels came and ministered to him. The Bible says that the angels rejoice when a person gets saved. Luke 15.10 says there's joy and celebration in the presence of the angels when one sinner turns to God in repentance. Think about this, on the day you got saved, the angels of God were celebrating There's a party in heaven. Your name was on the banner, and the angels were cheering before God about your salvation. You know, if you get saved today, just think about that. If you're not a Christian yet, how wonderful this is that all of heaven will stop, and the angels of God will celebrate your life, that you've come to know Jesus. We see that the angels are spectators of our lives in 1 Corinthians 4, 9. We see in 1 Corinthians 11.10 that they are present in the time of the worship of the church. And that dealt with how we do public worship. And they're also seen as carrying a believer to the place of comfort and blessing at death. You remember in Luke 16 where Jesus talked about Lazarus dying. It says the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. So often in my ministry in 30-something years, when I'm at places like Hospice House... Or in somebody's home when they're dying, so many times I've witnessed and heard them talk about in their families about it's like they're seeing something. Or sometimes a great smile is coming over their face. That something is happening that is preparing to take them to the next realm. And I don't think that is hallucinating usually or the effects of morphine. I think something is happening a lot of times in that situation that the angels are preparing to take them home. You know, another well-known evangelical theologian, he put it this way. This is one of the most well-known theologians in our country living today. He happens to be a Baptist, but people read him across the denominations. And he talked about this, about angels' involvement in our lives. He says, when a car suddenly swerves from hitting us, When we suddenly find footing to keep from being swept along in a raging river. When we walk unscathed in a dangerous neighborhood. Should we not suspect that God has sent his angels to protect us? Does not scripture promise for he will give his angels charge of you to guard you in all your ways? On their hands they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Psalm 91, 11 and 12. Should we not therefore thank God for sending Angels to protect us at such times, he says it seems right that we should. 
Certainly we can think of them as being involved in our lives to this degree at times. Now, while there's not great evidence that each of us has a particular guardian angel, I don't think the Bible makes that in any way clear. Perhaps one theologian says we can think of them sort of like as a, a zone defense from football and basketball teams, that uh, they're there, right, playing defense, looking out for the lives of believers. And it also seems an angel served God in carrying out his judgments against his enemies. They're seen in the Bible as wiping out God's enemies who threatened his people. In 2 Kings 19.35, he wiped out 185,000 Assyrians to deliver Israel. It was an angel whom God sent to destroy Herod because of his pride in Acts 12. And so they are involved, I think, the good angels in spiritual warfare against the fallen angels and the great drama of God overseeing his world and delivering and protecting his people, sometimes I think to the level of being involved in governmental entities, which we will come back and talk about the governmental powers of the world. I think from Paul's words in Ephesians we get that. So for instance, one I think cannot understand the evil power and wickedness of the Nazi regime, for instance. Many believe you can't understand the depth of that evil apart from demonic influence, even as we see good angels involved in delivering his people by causing the fall of evil regimes. And at the end, the angels are also going to be participating in the second coming of Jesus. They announce it. And they come, and they're the ones who gather his elect. And they separate the wheat from the chaff in that point, when Christ returns. So those are some of the things that the angels do. Now, wrapping this up, third point, and we're going to close, but... This is sort of the final application part of this. How does this apply to my life? How can I put this into practice? You know, we're never to worship angels, but we can certainly learn some things about life from them. One is we need to remember in the fact that they observe our lives that we're never alone. And Paul talks about them observing our lives. Peter talks about them longing to look and understand the implications of salvation in our lives because they've not experienced the fall, the ones that are, have never fallen. And so they remind us that the Lord is always with us by His Spirit, but also we have angels in our midst observing. And so therefore we must be aware of that and how we might grieve, listen, other beings by our disobedience and by our sin. And yet, as one writer put it, on the other hand... When we are discouraged and think that our faithful obedience to God is witnessed by no one, is an encouragement to no one, we can be comforted by the realization that perhaps hundreds of angels witnesses our lonely struggle, daily longing to look at the way Christ's great salvation finds expression in our lives. You ever doing something and say, nobody's paying any attention to what I'm doing. I hope God sees it, and he does. But sometimes that lonely faithfulness and that slog of life when it's just tough and you're saying, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. Think about these beautiful beings observing the work of Christ in our lives, which they long to understand and cheering us on in our faithfulness to God. We're never alone. Angels also provide a great example to us in longing to see and worship the Lord in His holiness and beauty. We should see through them how great is our God and be caught up in rapturous praise and joy before the throne of God who is so holy they cover their eyes but they are full of eyes so they can see His beauty. 
That should spur us on to want to worship him more passionately in our lives. Remembering the angel's presence also can give us courage to face life, trusting in God's good plan. And I don't have time to read it, but you can read 2 Kings chapter 6, where the prophet surrounded by enemies and his servant is afraid of the enemies that are surrounding him trying to get him and he prays for God to open the eyes of his servant to see that we're not alone here and they were surrounded by myriads of angels sort of like the Patton story and they were delivered and so when we can remember that it can give us courage that we're not alone when we stand to face the world with God on our side, the Spirit within us, but we have a host of angels around us, no matter what we're going through. And finally, we can remember their faithful service. They can inspire us through that to serve with confidence in what God has called us to do, big or small, in the eyes of the world. The faithful angels are always carrying out the Lord's will without fanfare. Remember, most of them are not named, right? Only two. Yet they have great contentment and joy in the presence of God and serving Him and what He has called them to do. Father, we thank You for these beautiful beings You have made that we someday will see fully before Your throne. Teach us to worship You, Lord, more passionately in light of, Lord, what they see as they are in Your glorious presence. Help us, Father, to live confidently in knowing that you're in us by your Spirit. We have your Word, but we are surrounded by a myriad of hosts that are for us, that fight for us, battle for us. As the old uh, song, old now, angels watching over me every move I make. Angels watching over me every breath I take. So help us trust you, Lord, and give you praise and thanks for how sometimes you Lord, out ahead of us, and these beings are working to protect us. But even should we die, and even should we go through hardship, Lord, and you restrain them as you did at the cross when you were arrested, then we'll know they're there even as we obediently do your will down to death. And Father, we just pray that you would uh, strengthen our public worship here week in and week out as we come in faith that we are gathered before the throne of God, purchased by the blood of Jesus, as your people you have redeemed, with, Lord, those that are out ahead of us who are already there, and also with the angels of God, that somehow we are mystically before you, all together worshiping you, praising you. And even as we sing here in just a moment, that we pray you'd remind us, Lord, of that truth. There are those, Lord, today who need to come to you in salvation, that the angels of God might rejoice along with them, draw them. If there are those who, Lord, need to reconsecrate their walk with you and grow in their faith, remembering the things we're talking about today, help those decisions to be made. Others, Lord, to come and be a part of this church. We just pray that whatever you desire to be done shall be done. As we sing now, Lord, we praise you and thank you for being here with us in Jesus' name.